0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics here at Talbot School of Theology at
1: Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology Biola University.
0: We're here with our special guest today, Professor Oz Guinness, who is a... I think the best way I know of to put it is he is as as well-known an author, speaker, and social critic as I'm aware of. Uh, And so we are delighted to have you with us. Thank you for taking time out uh, amidst your heavy travel schedule. Uh, and sp- many speaking obligations. so it's a we're,
2: pleasure. Scott and Sean, thank
0: you. Thank you. Well, we're very appreciative. Uh, we'd like to do something a little bit different rather than jumping into questions about content. And we want to feature your new book, Last Call for Liberty here, in, in, but we'll get to that in just a moment. We recognize that you've been at this for, for some time. Uh, it's not to say that you're old. Uh, it's it's not to say that you're you're anywhere close to retiring. As far, as far as I can tell, you're going as strong as you ever have, and uh, keeping as aggressive a schedule as you ever have. Uh, but we wanted to we wanted to help our listeners sort of understand some of what has made your ministry. As successful as it's been over the years, so if we could start, just tell it for some of our listeners might not be super familiar with you or with your writing. So tell us, tell our listeners a little bit of your own personal story, a bit about your upbringing, how you came to faith, and how you sort of came to be in the position that you're in today with the ministry that you have.
2: And that covers a in, lot
0: of issues. I'd <laughs> say in, in in a minute thirty seconds. <laughs> okay.
2: Well, <laughs> well, I'm the great, great great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Brewer, who came to faith in Jesus through John Wesley. And my side of the family has kept the faith ever since. So my grandfather was one of the first Western doctors in China, treated the last emperor. Both my parents were born in China, and I was born in China and lived there my first 10 years. Rather dramatic years with the war with Japan, incredible famine in which five million died in three months, including my brothers, as well as the climax of Mao Zedong's revolution. I went back after all that to England, so I went to an English school and then to London University. Just before I went up to university, I came to faith myself. Now, my parents were medical missionaries, but they were under house arrest in China So in my crucial teenage years, I didn't have any immediate influence. Obviously, they loved me and prayed for me, but I didn't have their immediate influence in my life. And I came to faith partly through a friend at school and partly through reading C.S. Lewis. But I would have to say that when I went to London University, early 60s, drugs, sex, rock and roll, the counterculture, swinging London, all that stuff, the Christians I knew, and we had incredible teaching like John Stott, Martin Low Jones. They gave us rich, deep blocks of theology, but nothing related to culture. They were two universes. Mm. So the person who made a difference for me was Francis Schaeffer. Mm. And i never forget the first time I saw him connecting all the dots. You could think Christianly about anything and everything under the Lordship of Jesus. And that was in a practical way, more revolutionary for me in my life than coming to faith. Obviously, salvation's more important, um, but that made a huge difference and set me on the path to try and understand this crazy, fascinating modern world we live
0: in. So it sounds like not, you got from him not only the fact that you can speak faith into all areas of life, but that you should. absolutely. Um that that's our, that's our mm-hmm. that's our that's part of our obligation to faithfully follow Christ but very simply because a lot of
2: people are still suspicious about quote culture you know the desire to witness that's the positive reason you can't talk to anyone without knowing the setting in which they live the negative reason i think is the danger of wilderness unless we know the culture it will shape us unawares and that's what the bible
0: calls wilderness so you would say you would say, at the top of the list of people who shaped your ability to think well and think Christianly about all of culture, Francis and Schaeffer would be at the top of they, the list. No, are, not, not necessarily top high. Okay. Are there? I are, mean, the
2: person who shaped me far more would be Peter Berger. Now he is okay. a Christian, but that's not for what he's he was known for. Yeah the the but American my,
0: the American sociologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, what, in what way was he influential in your, th- in your life and thinking?
2: Well, when I realized you had to understand contemporary culture, I had had a lot of what's called the history of ideas. But I realized that a huge amount of our contemporary world is not shaped by ideas, but by technologies, uh, institutions, things like that. And for that, you need sociology. And when I read Berger the first time, all the lights went on. And he became a good friend. I did my doctorate later on him, hmm. and uh, I owe him a huge amount intellectually, academically. I owe far more to Peter Berger than Francis Schaeffer, but Schaefer got me going.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the things I've appreciated, Oz, about your ministry over the years, and I've, you know, I've been reading your stuff since uh, the the early Labrie days and the, the Dust of Death and mm-hmm. some of, well, some of the very early publications is. This remarkable ability to read culture, uh, as, as we would say in, in theological terms, to exegete <laughs> culture as well as the biblical text, both— I don't use long words. I, I like that. I, both in the U.S. That was, that was for our biblical scholars, folks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. in other countries. Uh, so t- can you s- unpack a little bit more how you develop that skill? Because I don't. I just don't see too many people on the scene who are as committed to Jesus— And who have the skill at reading and interpreting culture like you Well,
2: I'm not a scholar. You know, when I left Oxford after my DPhil, I decided not to be a scholar. In other words, I saw you've got a lot of good scholarship. We can use more Christian scholarship, and then there are millions of good Christians who will do what they understand. The gap is missing in the middle. So I committed my life— To thinking, but try and bridge the gap between serious thinking and ordinary Christians. And so that's the middle level in which I've worked. But there are obviously, as I said earlier, two main disciplines, the history of ideas, how ideas wash down in the rain from thinkers to their thoughts, the impact in the streets, say, Nietzsche and postmodernism today. But the other thing, the technical term, is the sociology of knowledge. In other words, exploring how someone's life setting, the context in which they live, shapes their thinking without any thinker being involved at all. You take a notion like modern FAST life, twenty four seven pressure. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from any philosopher. It comes from clocks, watches. Right. And you can think of how that, or say consumerism, has undermined much of the American church. The various things like this, that's all comes under The sociology of knowledge or cultural analysis. But my concern has never been just to understand it for its own sake. But how does it affect discipleship? How does it affect communications and apologetics?
1: Let me make this as as practical as I can. I, I have a father who studies culture in many ways like you do. And one thing he's always doing is collecting every research, study, and article he possibly can, carves out time, and just goes through it methodically. Do you approach it in that fashion? Or how do you decide what to study, what to read, what to think about? What does a typical day look like for you?
2: Uh, well, as I said, I'm not a scholar, so I don't sit there doing research. But for me, a very key part of thinking is more intuitive, is creative. You, you know you, the, the clouds part for two seconds, and you see something, hmm. and you follow that up. So all my books started as what I call back-of-an-envelope idea, the clouds part, you write down a word or two words in the middle of the night, and then what I'll do is give a 10-minute talk, and after dinner, I talk someone. If it, if it has resonance, I'll develop it into a half-hour talk, and I've got about 20 or 30 half-hour ones at any time, and the one that's closest to the boil, think of a kitchen, I'll turn into a book. So, uh, But for me, that... Creative insult, the insight, the the intuitive moment that matters to me far more than reading a massive amount. So reading comes for me later.
1: So you're it kind of in the back of your mind always is just looking for a fresh insight, looking for a story, looking for something that you can. Take and expand and see if there's resonance. That's kind of a, a filter that's in the back of your mind. Is that fair?
2: Well, I'm not looking for them. They're all over the place. They sort of huh. bre- breaking in okay. on me. Okay. Okay. And there's too many in our world
0: today. <laughs> well, I mean, even though you, I mean, you, would, you admit that you're not a scholar. Um, although I think you've d- you've done actually some pretty good from pretty good serious work in the past. Uh, I, I find you to be particularly well read. Um, what would you say are the handful of books that have really shaped your thinking? You ref- you referenced Peter mm-hmm. Berger and some of his work in the past, uh, but what what would be some others? Um, well, I'm not a scholar. Scholars have to stay in their field,
2: and uh, if you stray into another one, someone will wrap your knuckles <laughs> and say, "Well, you're an <laughs> ethicist, Scott. What are you doing talking about this?" Yeah. You know. But I'm not. I'm just a thinker. So I can stray into any field I like. Because actually this is, in the global era, a great day for generalists. You've got to try and put all these things together. Um, For me, it's many of the classics of the past. You know, I love St. Augustine. He lived at an interim moment like we do. You know, 800 years of Rome, collapsed. And both the pagans were attacking Christians and Christians were demoralized. And he gave a vision that was the bridge that went on into the Dark Ages. And we need to do the same today because after 500 years of Western dominance, the West is collapsing and so on. So I love, go on down the centuries, I love Blaise Pascal uh, and people like that and G.K. Chesterton, of course, C.S. Lewis. So I have a huge amount to think of from the past. But then I read very widely on the other side, I try and read Nietzsche every year. And I, I've read all the new atheists, uh, currently just finished John Gray's The Seven Types mm-hmm. of Atheism, came out this year. So I try to read as much as I can on the other side. So it's not just Christian critiques of, but really seeing what some of, these, some of these guys really think.
1: So if you were starting fresh today, just say coming out of seminary grad school, Would you approach ministry the same way? What are the big questions or topics that would gather your attention over the next, say, decades or focus of your ministry if you were starting now?
2: Well, I'm always leery of book lists because they just don't fit everyone. Or rather, if they do, they're such obvious classics that they don't take you that far. I I believe in the classics, but I would like to listen to a student – you know, what's what are his gifts or her gifts? What are their calling? What's their future? And then try and craft something tailor-made for them in the field they're in. And it would differ widely depending on whatever field they choose.
1: So you mentioned a few uh, people that have influenced you deeply. How about just three or four books in particular? Now, you mentioned some of Augustine. You mentioned the seven. Uh, the book about the seven atheists. Maybe a a biblical book in particular that you resonate with? Like for me, I love the Gospel of John. There's any particular that you find yourself going back to that just speak to you in the way you think?
2: Well, the last 10 years I've been exploring freedom, and my new book is on that. But there's no question that the most interesting book on freedom is Exodus. And many, particularly evangelicals, don't realize the debt we owe to Exodus. So the Catholics ignored Exodus because, you know, in 380 when Theodosius declared Rome Christian, they copied Roman political structures so the pope was like the Caesar. So they never went to the Bible for their institutional structures. And sadly, they were based on power, which when it was corrupted, became horrendous like the Inquisition. But evangelicals don't realize the Reformation went back to Exodus, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Cromwell. In Europe, it failed. You know it's called the lost Cause in England, but what was the lost cause in England jumped the ocean and became the winning cause in New England. And many evangelicals don't realize that covenant is what's behind constitution. Many Americans don't realize that. And so I, I'm a great believer in really exploring these things. Exodus is rich in lessons for our crazy crisis now.
0: Let me, let me ask you a couple questions about your new book, uh, just, re, just recently released, called Last, Last Call for Liberty, uh, How America's Genius for Liberty Has Become Its Greatest Threat. Uh, what's, what's the big idea that you're trying to get across there? Well, what's the crisis?
2: People say it's a new stage of left against right, or coastlanders against the heartlanders, or the nationalists against the globalists. I argue the deepest division is actually a clash between two revolutions. You've got ideas of freedom and of the American Republic that go back to 1776, the American Revolution, which was decisively, although not consistently, biblical through the Reformation. Mm. And then you've got ideas about American freedom that go back to 1789 and the Enlightenment and its heirs. So if you look at, say, the impact of Nietzsche, Marcuse, Foucault, all these people, on postmodernism, political correctness, multiculturalism, the sexual revolution, social constructionism, or, say, Colin Kaepernick and the kneeing crisis, or the tactics of the Democrats in the Kavanaugh hearings. You can see that all goes back to the French style, not to the American. And America stands at a crossroads. It's a Rubicon moment. You either restore the founding vision or you go a different way, and it'll spell the end of the American Republic. So that that's the idea. But the book is a, a checklist of 10 questions about freedom that every citizen should ask as to where you come out. What is freedom? Where did it come from? And various other questions. And citizens better see. You remember Alexander Hamilton said, we got to know whether by reflection and choice we can build a free society. Well, America needs a national conversation today to see whether there's still enough reflection and choice or total incivility and violence to really see what type of freedom you want, which way America goes,
0: because America's at the Rubicon moment. So are you suggesting that some of what we've seen in the culture, say in the last two, five years or so, reflects more of a 1789 view of freedom than 1776?
2: Oh, put it mildly. Absolutely. Oh. Everything I said, those movements owe their genesis to 1789. But you take, say, the Kavanaugh hearings, the rejection of presumption of innocence, the disruption of the process, or the sheer expression of raw, naked power, whatever it takes. All of those are postmodern, coming from Nietzsche and 1789, not from the framers. You know, and and all the things that
0: animated the French Revolution, not the the American.
2: And you even heard voices in Washington last Saturday saying, we need another revolution. And by that, they mean a left-wing revolution, not the American. The American Revolution was, of the four big ones, you know, the American, the French, the Russian, Chinese, the only one that was largely conservative and profoundly biblical, whereas the others— were radical, anti biblical, and of course, as we know, they all had reigns of terror and ended with killing fields of one sort or another.
0: Yeah, not not to mention utopian visions that oh, that's right. that spa that, spawn, that Well, there, those There's things. a good difference. In other
2: words, you have two sources, the Bible, the Enlightenment. But you begin, say the anthropologies. The American Revolution, incredibly realistic. Separation of powers, etc., because of sin. French Revolution, Rousseau Man is born free, everywhere's in chains. So you know, Wilhelm Reich, the sexual revolution, remove a few sexual repressions and we'll all be happy and fulfilled. Just utopian nonsense
0: yeah. and incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I- I- ironic that those also had totalitarian, you know, pretty strong totalitarian leanings e- even from their roots. Well,
2: every time you have a gap between reality and the ideal, which of course is huge with utopians, only one way to bridge the gap Force, violence.
1: You mentioned earlier that there's kind of these moments where the clouds part, or I forget the exact phrase that you use, and gives you an idea for the book. What was the idea behind this book where it first hit you, I've got to write this, and how did it develop?
2: Well, I wrote another book a few years ago called A Free People's Suicide Mm -hmm. on sustainable freedom. But in the debate that followed that, I realized Americans never asked what actually is freedom. Mm -hmm. Something as simple and basic as that. And you remember Lincoln in the 1850s, he said, everyone's talking freedom, but the north means one thing, the south means another. You can see today, you take the classic difference that Lord Acton made, is freedom the permission to do what you like or the power to do what you ought? Those are fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. Second is our laws. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, in the French Revolution's one, there's no truth, no principles, just power.
1: What is it about truth that brings freedom? I often quote you had a, a lecture for the Veritas Forum in that book that Dallas Willard put together, A Place for Truth, and you, you kind of quote G.K. Chesterton where you make the point that you can't free a tiger from its stripes or free a camel from its hump and make the point that truth is being what we're designed to be, being ourselves. Could you, could you flesh that out a little bit? Well, a simple version
2: of that, I was at Oxford with Isaiah Berlin, the great Jewish philosopher, And he argued that freedom has two parts, negative and positive, and it needed both. So negative freedom is freedom from. If someone's under a colonial power, they're not free. If they're under the influence of drugs or alcohol or porn, they're not free. And there you have the irony that America calls itself the land of the free, but you've got more addictions and recovery groups than any nation in the world. People are not free. But you've got to start with negative freedom from but that's only half of it. That's the preliminary. You have to have positive freedom, freedom for, freedom to be. And to achieve that, you've got to know the truth of who you are. As you said from Chesterton, you know, a camel is one thing, tigers tiger is another, a human being. Are we animals? Are we machines? Or are we made in the image of God? You need to know the truth. And, of course, beyond that, you need to have truth, character, and a way of life to really achieve freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free.
1: So in your mind, do you kind of rank books in terms of being more important? And if so, where would you rank this one or do you not approach book projects in that way?
2: Um, no, n- <laughs> no, good question. There's a way in which every latest book is your favorite book in that way, but I I know which of mine are better or worse. (laughs) I do know that. (laughs) We won't ask you to complain on (laughs) that. (laughs) No, The Call is by far my bestseller Mm. because it goes to the heart of what our Lord calls us to be and do, so I'm I'm grateful for that. But of all my books you mentioned, The Dust of Death, I've written a whole series on public affairs. This is by far the most important, but partly because it, it is addressing the very problem America's suffering right now. Mm. In other words, you don't go down to the depth of the problem. I mean, I've heard all sorts of answers. I mean, uh, David Brooks and others talking this weekend, I thought they're not getting anywhere near the deepest part of the problem. In other words, put it differently. There is no Lincoln. This is the difference between 1850. No Lincoln today to address the better angels. Because what he did is address slavery... In the light of the better angels, because he believed in the declaration, Martin Luther King did. He saw the declaration as a promissory note. Stokely Carmichael or Colin Kaepernick don't, or Al Shopton. They just attack the evils in a postmodern power way.
0: I mean, I have sons who are millennials and Gen Z uh, at beings, those age, so. um, but they're just—they're so in that, these categories. They're—they're in that—they're they're, they're in, that, they're in that generation. I've um, had several discussions with my youngest son just about the political scene and how our, how our political discourse is going, and I find I find that both he and a lot of his friends are very discouraged and almost cynical about the uh, the state of our political discourse today. What, what advice would you have for those who say are in their twenties, sort of just starting out in terms of responsible citizenship uh, about the state of our political discourse today? Well,
2: I begin by saying that the cynicism, which is rife, is part of postmodernism. If truth is dead, nothing is quite what it appears to be. We should be suspicious. We probably will be cynical. So cynicism is a direct child of the Foucault-Nietzsche type of Mm -hmm. postmodernism. And I think it's abominable for Christians. Now, we should be constructive and hopeful, however dark the time But we've got to educate young Americans and certainly young followers of Jesus to know the part they can play. The scandal of the American church, this is the only country in the Western world where Christians are a huge majority and uninfluential. So we've got to give Christians hope, confidence in the gospel and know how to move out and make a difference. It can be turned around. I often You know Reinhold Niebuhr has a wonderful line, the end is not the end. In other words, there's two types of ends in the Bible. End as conclusion, finish, and then end as goal, purpose, telos. And so however many endings there are in the world, I mentioned the collapse of Rome. God always has an end in the sense of a purpose. That's what we're working for. So we should never be cynical or demoralized, but rather serve God's purposes
0: in our crazy day, and leave the outcome to him. That, uh, that's very helpful, I think, to see cynicism within its postmodern roots, uh, which I think, I think most people, t- mm-hmm. I, most of my, my sons and his friends, they equate cynicism with being a realist. Uh, and it's, from what you're mm-hmm. describing, it's actually something quite different than that.
1: No, I think realism, Christianly, goes along with hope. I'm curious, what does the book writing process look like for you?
2: Well, you remember, I'm not a scholar. (laughs) uh, For me, as I said, back of an envelope, an idea comes in the shower, sitting in sermons, my mind nodding off of a poor sermon. I get an idea, write down two or three words, and then I'll try it out. You know, you're asked to speak at a dinner for 10 minutes at the end, and I'll try that out. If it goes well, as I said, a half-hour talk. And then the one that, is closest to the boil and is closest to whatever's happening in the world today. That's the one I'll write. And for me, the first draft is the worst. Hard <laughs> slog, as, as many people say. Writing is the closest a man comes to having a baby. Mm. Hard work with a wonderfully pleasurable outcome.
0: Did, I, I tried to sell uh, that to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, the <laughs> nearest. Yeah. That, that did I not that say did the not equi- go over didn't, well. didn't say the equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> The I closest. For, I did work, I worked for nine months on a book project and tried to sell her that as the equivalent, and it was it was not well received. <laughs> do you,
1: do you outline like here's the ten chapters and then kind of fill it in, in a systematic way or yeah I how do. do you do I okay
2: do. and I'm actually better on structure. I'm not a great writer. To me, it's a message that burns it way out for mm. better or
1: worse. So there's a passion and a clarity yeah. at the heart of it that really. And you
2: know, I used to live in Switzerland when I was out at the Brie. You watch mountaineering, English and American climbers would climb hard and stop for 15 minutes. Climb hard again, stop for 15 minutes. Whereas the Swiss were more like metronomes. They just steady, 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 mm. never stopping until they got to the top. Uh, that's the same for me with writing. In other words, the days when you write on inspiration, which occasionally you do have, and the days when you write on sheer perspiration, <laughs> at the end of the day they're indistinguishable. Almost indistinguishable.
1: That's that's a great way to think about it. Let me ask you one more question, and I'll I'll turn it back back to Scott. I'm a I'm a parent of three kids: high schooler, almost junior higher in elementary school, or kindergartner actually. What what parenting advice or thoughts do you have for for parents sure. today? Something you've learned just along the way that stands out to you? Like this is one nugget.
2: Sean, I never speak on that publicly. <laughs> what I say when people ask me the question you've asked is, "Love them like mad, pray for them like mad, hmm. and fasten your seatbelt." <laughs> I, I, I don't go much beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: not my area. In other words, get ready for a white knuckle yeah. ride. Got it. Got know. it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you just one or two questions on uh, the state of religious freedom in the United States. You've, you've written quite a lot on this over the years. Uh, where, where do you see the debates and the court action on religious freedom in the United States headed in the next few years? We're at a very serious moment
2: because really right down to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RFRA, in 1993, there was a broad consensus – and in 20 years since then, there's more change than in the previous 300. And I put it down to what I call the three dark R's. You've got the reducers who reduced religious freedom to freedom of worship. And it's not that. Far, far bigger. Every dictator grants freedom of worship. Whatever you believe between your two ears, as so long as your mouth is firmly shut and you stay at home. <laughs> you know, Then you've got the removers. And that's what Dawkins calls himself, people who saw 9-11, the ugly violence, and they want to get religion out. So for many American elites, religious freedom is freedom from religion. But the really deadly one, the third one, the rebranders. So in the framers, civil and religious liberty was the motive for the revolution and freedom. Now, though, it's a code word for bigotry and discrimination. So they've taken a human right and turned it upside down. That is absolutely deadly, and they're cutting off the very branch on which they're sitting. Now, we need a powerful argument. Now, we as Christians, though, I don't mean us three particularly or even Biola, I I mean we as Christians in America have made a big mistake of just being concerned about us. As a Jewish uh, journalist said to me, evangelicals talk about justice, but we know what they mean, just us. If we defended the that's, common that's good, painful. the public good for everyone, then our own good would be safe too. But we've got to think first principle too and think globally the significance of this, but not just Christian persecution. We must not go the route of victim playing.
0: Hey, um, I'm sure you're aware of the, the case that was handled in Canada uh, not that long ago, Trinity Western mm-hmm. University, where their law school was denied accreditation and essentially forced to shut down mm-hmm. um, because they would not adhere to the the laws in British Columbia for non-discrimination against LGBT folks. Mm-hmm. Um, what What do you think is the potential for cases like that to move to sort of migrate south into the United States?
2: Well, you've got the same movements working here. You think of Baron L. Stutzman the florist mm. or Jack Phillips the cake maker or the brother who was the Atlanta fire chief or the girls who started a business and so on. So it's right here. I think we've got to argue I mean, against even, it. I mean,
0: even though Jack Phillips actually won his case. On, on a
2: narrow grounds, And immediately of. they came back to him the next yes. day.
0: I mean, just pernicious.
2: But we've got to argue it on first principle. And we've got to show that they're undermining human rights. In other words, if you undercut religious freedom, what they're undercutting is the right to conscientious objection. That's incredibly important. That's the end of freedom. But we've got to answer it in powerful ways that are persuasive, not just defending us.
0: Yeah, I, but, I mean, I like the way you put it in your book, the global the global public square, where mm-hmm. you call it soul freedom. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a better term than than even freedom of well, conscience. That, yeah, well, um, a lot of atheists don't believe in souls, but I'm just
2: trying to pick up the, the <laughs> resonance of yeah. Roger Williams. That's his term. <laughs> yes. And, you know, to coerce someone's conscience, he called it soul rape, which is very powerful.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, one, one, just one other question, and then we'll we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, how What do you think will be the impact? You know, Brett Kavanaugh was just... Recent, just confirmed and uh, uh, sworn in. What do you think will be the impact of him being on the court for religious freedom cases in the United States in the future?
2: Well, I mean, he is a constitutionalist in a strong way, so there's no question he will be a wonderful voice for that, and I would welcome it. The real question is, though, what is the legacy of the hearings? Now, as we've seen... As Chuck Schumer said, he'd do whatever it takes to stop him, and they have done it Hmm. with false fabrications, with protests that were like mob rule and so on. I hope the country will step back and say, where do these things come from? What's behind it? I would argue ideas that come from the French Revolution, not the American. Incredibly dangerous, but can America learn in time? I get in trouble in Washington by arguing that the never-Trumpers, and we have some distinguished Christian evangelical never-Trumpers, they make a bad mistake because they're obsessed with Trump. Trump is the consequence, not the cause, of the crisis. And what he provides is at least a four-year breathing space for people to stand back and say, well, where are we what's gone wrong? And not to be obsessed with Trump, you can argue for and against him, on 100 things, that's not my concern. But to see he is not the cause of the crisis, he's the consequence. Yeah, that, that I think a very helpful. I call him God's wrecking ball, <laughs> stopping America in its tracks, giving them breathing yeah. space to rethink.
0: I think that, yeah, that's I think a very helpful distinction uh, to make. So that, that I think helps put that in, I think in a, in a helpful perspective. Um, Oswego, we're, so, we're very grateful for your latest book, uh, Last Call for Liberty, how the American genius for liberty has become its greatest threat. Uh, we would really encourage our listeners to pick that up. And li- like all of your books, incredibly insightful stuff, uh, lots of really good food for thought. We're very grateful for you being with us today. I wish... Uh, You didn't have another engagement, and we could uh, extend this for another hour or so. I don't think we'd have any trouble doing that. But uh, we're very grateful for the time for you being on the podcast with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Sean. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. If you enjoyed today's podcast and our guest, Dr. Oz Guinness, and want to hear more about uh, him, or get, other, get a listing of other podcasts, uh, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed the podcast today, give us a rating on your podcast app. Share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.